There's something amazing about humans. We can communicate. And not just simple phrases like, there's a predator in the area. We can express the past and the future, our emotions and our thoughts. We have the ability to develop, speak, and comprehend language. As far as we know, we're the only animal species who not only can communicate, but who have this beautiful, complex system. Language is this remarkable ability that, well, in its full capacity, only humans have. It is what we're doing right now. We're communicating using language. And although other species will have some aspects of communication, communicating with meaning, or communicating some other forms of information, the human capability for language is actually quite unique in a number of different ways. But when did language develop? When did our ancestors go from using grunts and calls to a system of complex understanding? Many people believe that our ancestors' brains developed the necessary pathways to lay the groundworks for language five million years ago. That's before apes and humans split on the evolutionary tree. But perhaps the groundworks of language actually were built much, much earlier. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, language, culture, art, and history. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. The supporters of this podcast will have access to some bonus content. You can listen to a mini episode where Chris talks about the commonalities between language and music and how you could think of music as having a grammar and structure much like we see in language. You'll also see images from their lab, of the brain scans, and of one of their monkey friends from their lab. You can access all of this through the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. And if you're not a patron and you want to become one, you can join by going to the website sparkdialogue.com or the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. As always, thanks for your support. Hi there, I'm Chris Petkov. I'm professor of neuroscience at Newcastle University, the medical school, and Newcastle is in Northeast England. Hi, um, I'm Ben Wilson. For the last 10 years, I've been a researcher at Newcastle University, but I'm in the process of moving to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, to start my own lab looking at comparative neuroscience uh, and understanding the evolution of language. There's a big difference between language and communication. Many animal species communicate. Birds sing to one another, coyotes howl, whales bellow, but we're the only species that takes this one step farther and turns this into a language. Communicating meaning by itself is broadly evolutionarily conserved. We've known that actually for many years, you know, since some of the initial studies have identified that uh, monkeys had alarm calls. These are vocalizations that refer to a predator that uh, some of the individuals may have seen and they want to inform the others that there's a particular form of predator out there. And it's very interesting with these alarm calls that um, they can refer to different types of predators, and then the animal's responses to just hearing those vocalization sounds would be very different, again, depending on the type of predator that's being uh, identified. And it's not just monkeys that have these abilities. You see that quite in a, in a number of different species. Now, when it comes to vocal production, and animals that have richly structured communication signals, like songbirds and whales, then the evolutionary picture becomes a little bit more sparse. And so for many years, it was thought that non-human primates, who would be humans' closest evolutionary relatives, including monkeys and apes, that a lot of their 
communication signals were innate. That was the idea, that it was just genetically programmed and, you know, there wasn't really any learning going on there, which was a big puzzle because human language is learned and, uh, you know, you keep learning it throughout life. But then if you look for something as richly complex, at least in some of the structure, then, you know, it's easy to look outside your window and say, oh, wow, yeah, those songbirds, those songs are just remarkable. And they are. And uh, uh, new analytical approaches uh, using deep learning and machine learning AI are showing us how richly complex some of those songs are. One of the latest ideas about what makes language unique is that it allows us to structure things in a way that's much more complex than what other animals might be able to do. Now, keep in mind, this is a hypothesis, and we've not yet reached a full understanding of the full capabilities of other animals, be it monkeys or even songbirds uh, or whales or any other species. But still, it's a hypothesis that it's, it's this ability that we have to take you know, multiple meaningful units, words, put them together in a sentence where some of those words refer to others and help us to construct a meaning that's much more elaborate than we think other animals are able to do. Um, so that's one of one of the, the latest ideas. And uh, again, it's a hypothesis. And so we need to see how complex are the communication abilities of those animals. Language allows us to dive into the abstract. Imagine a herd of monkeys in the mountains. They could have a call that says that there's a predator in the area. But language gives us the ability to communicate temporal ideas as well. We can talk about the past or events that have yet to occur. The concept of time is tied into language as well. After all, the French language has over 20 different verb tenses. Things that have happened, things that are happening, things that may happen in the future, on and on. Being able to have a language gives us the ability to express the abstract, not just here and now. There is a kind of difficulty in these conversations sometimes because we often think about language as primarily a communication system, as a way of communicating with others, of giving them information or receiving information from them. But I think language is also really critical in structuring our own thoughts and therefore letting us have more complex thoughts about things like um, what's happening distantly, whether that's in space or in time, um, planning really complex actions. And it's not easy to understand well, how that kind of complex thought could have necessarily evolved without language. I think it's actually very likely that the two evolved in concert, kind of playing off each other. The more you can communicate, the more you can structure com complex concepts to communicate them, the more you can then use those to plan complex actions in the future. Non-human primate communication uh, is very much in the present. They've obviously got things like alarm calls so they can communicate about predators who are in their environment. And they can even sometimes do reasonably complex things like combine those calls. There's a species of monkey called the putty-nosed monkey that have different alarm calls for uh, a leopard and for an eagle. But when they use those two calls in combination, it produces a different response in all of the other uh, animals who are listening to it. There are even some species of monkeys who make use of other monkey species um, alarm calls. So they may hear a different monkey vocalizing that there's a predator in the area and they can understand that and they can use it. But it is very much uh, in the moment. They know that there is an immediate threat and they can respond to that. There are some examples of referring to things that are further away, whether again in space or time, even going to something like bumblebees with the waggle dance that they use to communicate where um, pollen or, uh, may be with their conspecifics. I think that's particularly amazing because it is so uncommon 
that stands out because we don't have very clear examples of that in the primate order, but it's clearly not entirely unique to humans. Um, One of the species I think is really important when we're talking about the evolution of communication and maybe how that relates to language are the songbirds that Chris mentioned earlier. Some of those have incredibly elaborate systems of combining different notes, different motifs into incredibly complex songs. But in nearly all of those cases, the thing that is being communicated by those songbirds is their virtuosity. They're effectively saying, look how well I can sing. And it's normally used in either territory defense or, or mate selection. Their main, the main thing they're communicating is about the quality of their own song they're not saying there's food over there here is a predator and they're certainly not making decisions and planning for the future as we can do with human language and i think that's the thing that most other animals don't have we have the ability to not only use meaningful words that refer to real things in the world but to combine those uh, in incredibly complex ways and i think it's the ability to do that which actually gives us the ability to think and dis- well, think about and then to communicate events that occur in the distant past or future or separated from us in space, and even then things that are entirely abstract and hypothetical, which is much harder to imagine that an animal could conceive of without some sort of language system that could allow it. All of that is, as Chris said, kind of a hypothesis, and I am looking forward to being disproved on some of this, and it's, it's fascinating to see the extent to which Um, animal researchers find new incredible behaviors that we didn't know about until very recently. So it's going to be exciting to see the direction this goes and find out what animals really are capable of. So I think it's fair to say that one day our ancestors didn't just jump up and start expressing complex thoughts and events through language. As with many things, it most likely developed slowly, coming together piece by piece. I think one of the really important things is that I don't view language as some sort of singular ability that is kind of all or nothing that's supported by a single brain area or by a single gene. It's certainly in its evolutionary origins. It originated from various different cognitive abilities, different brain areas, some of which may be present in other animals and some which may be more uniquely human. Language includes things like semantics, understanding that words relate to objects or actions in the real world. It includes syntax, understanding that the order of the words in a sentence dictate the meaning of that sentence. And both semantics and syntax are probably unique to humans and therefore probably originated fairly recently, if you consider them in their full kind of linguistic sense. So why have language in the first place? What's so special about us that we have language? Well, one important thing about us humans is that we are social creatures. We live our lives in groups, and we thrive or perish together. Our social nature is key to forming a language system. It helped our ancestors bond in new ways and to form deeper connections. There are, as Chris mentioned, a lot of theories of language evolution, and we have good data for some of them, uh, but the jury is kind of still out. But one of the things that I think is quite interesting is that a lot of theories of language evolution kind of tackle different parts of its evolutionary history. You sometimes have a theory that might explain how we went from relatively simple language, but still communicative referential language, to something more complex. I think that it's also really interesting, though, to think about the earliest origins of language, of how we went from very simple communication, stuff that is still seen in non-human primates today, to the full kind of level of complexity that we have in human language. One theory that I really like uh, was originally proposed by Robin Dunbar. 
He was originally an anthropologist. He spent a lot of time looking at the social behaviors and social groups of non-human primates in Africa. Um, and one of the things that he noticed is that non-human primates spend a disproportional amount of time on behaviors that don't seem to have very much adaptive value at all. And this particularly includes grooming. They'll spend huge amounts of time every day sitting around grooming each other. And he always wondered why this was. Now, it seems that the main reason for grooming in extant non-human primates, those are primates that are still around that we can still observe, is that it really facilitates social bonding. If you, you firstly groom those animals that you are closest to in your social network, but those animals that you are most likely to groom that you spend the most time with are also most likely to support you in conflicts. Um, so this kind of grooming is necessary to maintain your social relationships across your social group. But there's also a, there's a lot of adaptive value in expanding your social group sizes, particularly in certain situations. For example, if there's a lot of predation, a lot of predators in your uh, environment, then larger social groups can give you more vigilance. You can be less likely to be uh, attacked by predators. But there are only so many hours in a day. And if you only have one set of hands, there's only a certain amount of grooming that you can actually do. Um, and that kind of limits the amount of social bonds that you can form. As a social group gets bigger, if you're not constantly maintaining those social bonds, then the group may ultimately end up fractioning off into smaller groups. So Robin Dunbar's theory was that... Um, to overcome this, non-human primates in our evolutionary past, although you can still see this to some extent in some extant species, um, started using sort of simple vocalizations almost as a way of uh, interacting with each other, but interacting with multiple individuals at a time. They kind of sit together and he called this uh, gossip as the early precursor to sort of human vocal communication. Monkeys sitting around effectively conversing to maintain those social bonds, but in larger groups than was previously possible. So that would then allow you to have larger social groups. As your social group um, expands, as I mentioned earlier, that causes you to require more brain power to be able to track all of those relationships. This is how language and the total brain size become so in intrinsically linked. Um, you can have larger and larger social groups. He's then extended that further um, to say things like, well, as this continues, maybe this explains why things like uh, singing are such um, a a universal across human cultures that groups get together and they sing. Um, and you can see this pretty much anywhere you look in the world. The anthropologists would be able to talk more about that than I can as another great way of maintaining these social bonds. And a final piece of evidence that I really kind of like from this is if you look at any of these things, uh, grooming or a kind of human analog, if you imagine kind of sort of soft touch um, on the skin, Gossiping with friends, communal singing, all of them seem to quite similarly release endorphins in similar kind of ways, which really uh, tie together and strengthen those sorts of social bonds. So his argument is that our language abilities, our communicative abilities kind of evolved, not specifically to allow us to communicate more information, but to allow us to maintain these social bonds in more complex ways and across a larger social group. But then, of course, when you have the ability to do this kind of vocal communication, when you're already using your vocal abilities to maintain social bonds, it becomes incredibly powerful to also be able to communicate more information. We know that the animals already had um, alarm calls, so they can communicate some sort of information. And it doesn't take too much to imagine how relatively small increases in what they're able to communicate, given that they already have this predisposition to communicate, could lead to a kind of ratcheting up and that that could in the end lead to something approaching the level of complexity that we have in, in human language today. Our social structures, our social interactions of ancestors to, um, to humans and, and monkeys and apes potentially had grown so, so rich and informative 
that uh, it required a system that could, you know, keep track of all of those relationships. And I'll give you an example for that. And this again comes back from um, some of the studies that we were mentioning in in, in monkeys. Um, this one in particular by Robert Seifarth, Dorothy Cheney, and their groups, and it involved studying baboons in Botswana, uh, in Africa, in the in, in the wild. And it's a beautiful study. It's one that Ben and I refer to actually quite often as we try to understand what aspects of these precursors to language uh, we might be tapping into um, in, in, in other species. Um, and their study involved just a really beautiful demonstration of how a baboon is keeping track of the social dominance hierarchy of other animals. What I mean by that is that you've got a baboon that is there interacting with many others. And that baboon can keep track of who is more dominant or more subordinate to it um, in its interactions. And they can do that by hearing the vocalizations of those others and, you know, recognizing them by voice. And then they understand, okay, this individual previously I knew is above me in the social hierarchy. So I'm not going to be trying to, uh, I'm going to be careful to make it seem as as if I'm not trying to challenge it in my communications. And not only that, but then there are families of baboons that are more dominant than others. And so uh, the study by uh, Dorothy Cheney and Robert Seifarth and their groups showed that the the baboons can keep track of all of that information, all that social information. And their hypothesis is that these social cognitive abilities that came about because we we had richer uh, social interactions you know, required a change in the system that was then presumably much more language ready. I think what Ben and I would say on top of that is, is that we're also tapping into abilities where the animals are showing us, um, not through their vocal production ability, but through what they can understand, what they can comprehend, that they have a very rich learning system that allows them to learn the properties of the world. And again, the sensory world, whether it's auditory or visual, has a lot of structure. And, you know, it's easy for us to imagine that we can learn that structure as humans, as individuals, because we can appreciate, you know, how complex the world is, and we can understand it, both through space and time. But it's remarkable that we haven't actually explored that to as good of an extent with non-human animals. And um, so the, the work that we've been doing with Ben involves using what are called artificial grammar learning uh, studies. And then we're trying to understand how rich is the structure that these animals can learn, regardless of what they're able to produce with their vocal uh, uh, communication abilities. Language is complex. Information must be passed from one group of neurons to another on information superhighways called neural pathways. Understanding these pathways is the first step in understanding how language works within the brain. The core abilities that underpin those may have existed for a long time in the past. So I think that it's difficult to sort of say, when did all of language exist? Because we, I think Chris and I would probably both agree, that's certainly a more recent innovation than anything shared with other non-human primates. But aspects of that language ability might um, have existed for a long time in the past. Our research is showing that one of the key pathways, which is particularly involved in, in various aspects of particularly more complex language in humans, has existed for a lot longer than we previously thought, as is shared by rhesus macaques, which we shared a common ancestor with about 25 million years ago. These pathways cross large portions of the brain. We get information from the auditory and visual cortices. These signals have to be assigned meaning, and this happens in a handful of regions across the brain. When you speak, 
you need to come up with an abstract idea. Your brain then has to tell your mouth, your vocal cords, and your lungs to work together to produce the sounds of language. Because of this, language does not just originate from one part of the brain. About 150 years ago, you know, one of the striking discoveries in neuroscience was when um, a neurologist called Paul, Paul Broca and a um, psychiatrist, if I remember correctly, Carl Wernicke, discovered that some patients that had stroke in particular parts of the brain would lose various aspects of their language abilities. And so for many, many years, it was thought that these areas, Broca's area and Wernicke's area, were, were crucial for language, and they are. But uh, more recently, um, it's remarkable how extensive the language system is in the brain. And that's actually, I think, fundamentally our interest, that um, it's, it's a large system. And damage to that system can occur by way of stroke or brain degeneration, various forms of dementia. And that means that either immediately as a function of stroke or gradually because of a you know, brain degeneration, uh, and, you know, folks might have an impact on their language system. And so we really just need to understand that at a fundamental level. So how do you study the origins of language? Brains don't fossilize. We can't go back millions of years to study how ancient brains made connections. So how on earth can we understand how our ancestors thought and what their mental capacities were? Well, to do this, scientists have to work indirectly. Brains don't fossilize like like bones tend to, and um, and so we're kind of stuck. Um, you know, you can imagine that uh, the, the the idea of a brain fossil is is actually a good one for the for the type of research that we did, but we can't approach it in the same way as archaeologists out there looking for for bones that could help to uh, give us perspectives on how ancestors to humans may have been. Um, so we have a, a slightly different challenge as neuroscientists. It means that we have to infer, try to understand how those ancestral brains may have been like, but indirectly. And so the, the way that we do that is that we would scan humans, monkeys and apes as we did in this study, and those are all living animals. And whatever we identify that is similar across those species would give us an indication that an ancestor to those species had similar brain structure or brain function or brain pathways. Um, and so you have to infer that once you identify the common ground that you see across brain pathways or how the brain works across uh, certain species, then all of a sudden you do have an insight. And you know, it's likely that the ancestors to those animals had uh, similar brain function, or, although we won't know for sure. We can scan the brains of humans, apes, chimpanzees, and monkeys. We can see what is happening inside those brains that is different and what is alike. And this helps us to see where the pathways of language originated. The way that um, neuroscientists will scan the brain is that we rely on you know, brain scanners. And there's various forms of these ones. But uh, the scanners that we used are called uh, magnetic resonance imaging scanners, MRI scanners, some people may have heard of. And these look like... Uh, you know, a, a large donut that you put your, your head into. It allows picking up a signal from inside of the head. And so it sees inside of the head and it sees the brain. Um, and there are a couple of different scans that could be made to see that brain. One is just to look at its structure. 
And this is, uh, you know, th these are the sorts of pictures of brains that people would see online. And it allows you uh, the opportunity to look through a number of slices of the scan throughout the brain and look into whatever brain regions you're interested in. So the scanners will let you look at the structure, how, how the brain looks. And obviously this is quite important clinically because then radiographers, ne neurologists can see whether there's anything uh, that looks unusual about the brain. And that's often done, you know, if, a, if an individual has some sort of a, um, if they suspect that there's a stroke to see what um, impact it would have had on the brain. But the second type of scan that could be done is looking at how the brain works or looking at some of the pathways uh, within the brain, uh, because those won't be obvious within the, the scan that sh shows you the structure. Uh, but there's some um, analytical uh, approaches that could be done to look at how the brain is interconnected. And so what we mean by brain pathways is that the, the brain is made up of neurons and there are pathways interconnecting those neurons. And one of those pathways is called the, the arcuate fasciculus. This is the, the so-called language pathway. It's not the only pathway involved for language. Um, we now know that the language system is much more extensive than, uh, you know, what we, we could have imagined. Um, but it's a pathway that is important. And it's important because when there's damage to it because of stroke or some other form of brain impairment, uh, that individual will immediately lose their language ability. And so it's, you know, the, the impression there is, is that here's an individual that has been able to communicate with others and, you know, work and go about their, their daily life. But then let's say that there's a stroke that affects the language ability, then immediately they might lose the ability to comprehend language, which means that, you know, all of a sudden it seems like everyone is speaking in a language. But unlike you and I, who could learn that foreign language, an individual with stroke typically might not be able to, or at least would, uh, you know, would, would have to really struggle with that to, to relearn it. So either losing the ability to comprehend language or being able to comprehend it, but not being able to communicate, you know, that language, uh, to produce language, then those will be a, a couple of common, common ways that language would be affected. For language, many parts of our brain need to be engaged. We need our brains to be able to tell us to physically make the sounds of language. We need our brains to connect to our ears to hear. Finally, there is comprehension to understand abstract ideas. Language is so complex, areas across the entire brain light up. This pathway in humans is interconnecting not just the auditory areas, and actually that was the, the reason why we think that this uh, a precursor uh, pathway in monkeys was, was missed, was that you know, scientists just may have been looking elsewhere for it um, in other parts of the brain, like, for example, areas that might be interconnecting visual cortex, you know, um, and supporting our visual abilities and the prefrontal cortex and the, these complex cognitive abilities and how they interface with the visual information that we're seeing. You know, the, the, the connectivity between the areas that are processing the world, um, bringing in sounds, uh, you know, uh, sound information or visual information, and, you know, interfacing that with uh, frontal areas that are important for decision making, for uh, for vocal communication, um, that all of a sudden becomes quite uh, quite important. And it's a good analogy to language because language is not just auditory, it's not just spoken words, like the, the form of commu communication that we're having, but there could be written communication if we decided to have this discussion over email or in some other form, or it could be signed. And so language doesn't really care so much necessarily about the form of the sensory input. It could be auditory, visual, or somatosensory. 
it's able to operate regardless of uh, of all of that. You know, we we can think about some other pathways, some other segments of this um, language pathway in humans, homologs of it that uh, might be interconnecting visual or somatosensory areas with uh, some of these frontal areas that are important for uh, constructing the the meaning of what's what's being um, uh, understood. These areas would light up in the scans. Looking at the brains of various primates, they could see which regions were connected, which regions had pathways linking them. Now, these pathways don't mean that the brain has the ability to form and understand language, yet, just that the groundwork is there. And then the brain scans allow us to take a look at the brain areas, this this network of regions that are involved in language, and look at the brain pathways that interconnect them. So when were these language pathways developed? To see that, we need to see which primates have these language pathways in the first place. Then we can trace them back to our common ancestor on the family tree. But Ben, Chris, and their colleagues found that these pathways are older than previously thought. This brain pathway in humans, this arcuate fasciculus that interconnects auditory areas, areas that are processing speech sounds, for example, with frontal brain areas that are important for understanding and structuring those speech signals and then starting to, you know, be able to be ready to produce language in in response. Uh, This pathway, whether monkeys have a homologue of this pathway, what I mean by that, um, have some variant of this pathway um, that indicates how the language pathway may have evolved. Now that's been highly contentious, highly controversial. It has been known for actually about 12 years that chimpanzees, apes, do have uh, a homologue of this pathway. It's not a language pathway. They, you know, uh, As we indicated, um, only humans have language as we know it. But it's a pathway there that looks very much like this language pathway in, in humans. And in the chimpanzees, it interconnects these auditory areas with, with frontal areas. Um, and then in our study, we saw that actually monkeys have this pathway as well, and uh, it seemed to be hiding within this auditor- into the auditory system. So that's the the, the missing link that we've established. The, the study that we conducted um, generated data that allowed us to infer that even monkeys have a homologue of this pathway. But just by being able, being able to make that relationship and see that there's interconnection between the auditory and these frontal areas, gives us an indication that, oh, okay, so the auditory system was an important aspect in this evolutionary puzzle. And maybe, you know, the, the, the way that these animals communicate with others, that would have been a system that, uh, you know, within the human lineage uh, evolved to support language. This means that language pathways existed much earlier than previously believed, 20 million years earlier than we originally thought. This means that researchers saw these pathways in old world monkeys, not just animals such as chimpanzees and gorillas. There are other fossils we can look at, though. Fossils of the mouth, the tongue, and the throat. Some even look at the shape of the skull. So some people may have heard uh, of something called phrenology. And this was, um, well, it wasn't really science, but it was, a, it was a start towards the science that we have these days. And it was in the 1800s that uh, a couple of uh, individuals suggested that you could understand how the brain works by just sort of feeling around the skull and probing the bumps and nooks. And that seemed reasonable at the time, but actually there's not a very good correspondence between what the skull shows in terms of bumps and what the brain would be like underneath that skull, because there's lots of reasons why the skull might be thicker in a particular part of the brain or not. Um, And the other 
you know, misstep, um, which is why it's called pseudoscience, is that, you know, those individuals started to in, infer that certain skull bumps uh, gave you an indication of what the brain was like. But they started to make up certain things that, you know, like creativity was here and here. And then you started to make assumptions about individuals just based on, you know, how their skull features might be like. Now, the skull features, obviously, you could pick up. And if that, you know, that had turned out to be um, credible science, then that it would have been very useful what we could see with, uh, with fossils of some of those skulls. However, um, more recently, you have techniques like EEG that allow you to measure the electrical potentials of the brain. And that's done by putting electrodes on, on the surface of the head. And so that, that gives us a more accurate indication of how the brain is, is working. When we want to try and understand the evolution of something like the brain, like behavior, like language, um, obviously it's really important to understand how the brain has changed over evolutionary time. One of the earlier approaches, particularly in anthropology, was to look at um, the skulls, which do fossilize across many species. You can use both extant animals, as in those that are still alive, and fossils. So you can look at changes in gross brain size across evolutionary time, and you can see clear changes as you get at different stages through the hominin lineage. Um, there's even been work that's gone slightly further than that and has looked at things like the neocortex ratio, which is kind of looking at the size of the cortex of the brain in relation to the other areas of it. These measures of gross brain size or neocortex size are critical in understanding the evolution of language in its much earlier, its much earlier history. Understanding the origin of language is not just an academic question. It gives us insight into how language works in our own brains right now. And understanding this could help people with dementia or who had a stroke, people who can no longer speak or comprehend language. If we understand how language works in the brain, we can possibly help people who lost their own language ability. Animal research, for example, with uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, research with monkeys was instrumental for um, the therapies that have been developed, which include being able to stimulate the brain, deep brain stimulation to, to help to address some of the symptoms in Parkinson's disease. Now, because language is often thought to be unique in a system that has specialized so much in the human brain, oftentimes you think that this is outside of the access of you know, animal models would just be silly to think of. But uh, a lot of the progress that we've been discussing over this podcast that has been made in scientific literature over um, over the last decade or so is quite promising in that no, only humans have language, but there's some aspects of that, those communication abilities that we know are related in this and this way. And with the recent study, uh, we, we know now that even um, the so-called language pathway in humans has uh, an older evolutionary precursor. And so that means that we can... I think for the first time, start to think about some realistic ways in which we can study the system and non-human uh, primates. What can this lead to in terms of benefits? Well, twofold. One is that already just looking at these pathways and being able to establish that there's an auditory segment, as we call it, of this language pathway, which wasn't something that wasn't, was, uh, was very clear uh, previously. It means that now we can start to think about uh, stroke patients, for example, that might have damage to this auditory segment uh, or damage to other segments that might need to be described with, uh, with fut uh, future research. Um, again, why that's important is, is that um, brain imaging scans are now being used by neurologists, including um, some of our neurology co collaborators, 
And so if someone has a stroke and it affects their language abilities, typically in the past, those individuals would be sent out for speech and language therapy. And then it's almost like, well, let's hope for the best that that can help to recover your language abilities. But now neurologists will do more than that. They'll send that patient in for a brain scan and that scan will be sent to various places, including uh, University College London, that specializes in identifying the brain pathway, inc- including the language pathway, this arcuate-fasciculate pathway, and the extent to which it's been damaged. Then that analysis allows sending a prognosis back to the neurologist, and that neurologist can discuss with their patients about what are the chances that this individual would be able to recover their language abilities, and how long might that take? Now, a lot of individuals listening to this podcast might be thinking, well, there's a lot of language problem. Uh, there's a lot of brain problems that could happen that are very difficult to treat. But actually, understanding the means that we can make a better prognosis, give a better prediction about when that recovery might occur. And actually, one of the insights from that, that work has been that for some patients, it could take maybe five years or even 10 years, but they have a good chance of recovering some of those lost language abilities. And so it you know, gives you an indication that Yes, recovery is not impossible, but it might take more time than you might have expected. The other benefit is that having an animal model means that there are certain things that we can't study in the human brain uh, for ethical reasons. And of course, the work that we do with uh, non-human primates is uh, strictly regulated by the home office, by, by regulatory bodies, and it has to be done for only important scientific reasons. And one of those important scientific reasons is to provide an animal model to understand the human brain in a way that the human brain cannot be uh, studied directly. And having that link now uh, that's better established to a system that the monkeys are using for their cognitive abilities in their own right, for their own you know, r- rich communication system, having that link to, to, to humans and the system, um, it just provides a lot of opportunities going forward. Language may be a human thing. But it turns out our closest animal relatives may help us understand where it comes from, how language is processed in the brain, and may even be able to help people who have lost the ability to speak or understand. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook or Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. And remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out the bonus episode and the images on patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. Thanks for joining us today, and see you in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from Language of My Reality by Thomas Fusion. Depart CDK Mix by Analog by Nature, Skydub by Psychic, and Start to Grow CDK Mix by Analog by Nature. More information about these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.